Um, I came across an interesting little story because this is Children's Day, and I've already kind of given some things that I used to happen to me when I was a kid, so that kind of related to all the children. How many of you children have ever been spanked in service before? Anybody ever been spanked during the service other than me? A couple of older people have, but uh, we just don't do that anymore. But uh, it was graduation time, and this is graduation time for all of us. We have a lot of people that I've attended a lot of the graduation parties, and we have a lot of graduates that are going on and a lot of graduations. And so this was unlike many. There was a graduation that was going on, and the preschool children were moving into the elementary school. And so there was a preschool commencement service. And so the teacher decided that every child would stand up and recite the 23rd Psalm. These are young children now. And so the 23rd Psalm is a pretty long Psalm, but for two months they rehearsed and they got up the night before and every child during the rehearsal of the commencement service, each got up and did very, very well. And so the teacher was pretty confident until finally the day of the commencement service, one of the little children, the boys named Johnny, who stood up in the limelight when it was his turn to recite the 23rd Psalm, saw the crowd that was out there and got stage fright and he froze. He could not remember his lines. The teacher was trying to say to him off the side, the Lord is my shepherd. And the light was not coming on. The Lord is my shepherd. A little louder. The light was not coming on. The Lord is my shepherd. He wasn't hearing a thing. Finally, his mom, about the fourth, fifth row down there, said, The Lord is my shepherd. And the light went on. And he gathered his composure and he said, The Lord is my shepherd. And because of that, I should never be afraid. And that was it. And he got a rounding applause. You know, when you really think about the 23rd Psalm, that's exactly what the 23rd Psalm teaches us. That because the Lord is our shepherd, we should never be afraid, for the Lord is our shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And you jump to the next. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. The 23rd Psalm is about faith conquering fear. That because we have a relationship with the Father and He is our shepherd, the sheep doesn't have to be afraid of anything because the shepherd will guard, He will protect, He will feed, He will provide for His sheep. And we, as His children, through faith in Jesus, are His sheep. He is our shepherd. And we shall not ever be in a circumstance or in a situation in which we are ever afraid to the point where our faith becomes paralyzed. And yet we find ourselves in John 20, verse 19, where the fear of the disciples is so overcoming that that fear paralyzes them to the point where they lock themselves up in an upper room, literally afraid that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them, and they are seeking to protect themselves from that very outcome. And they stray from the faith. It began when they were in the garden with Jesus, and Jesus was arrested. And Mark tells us that they literally left him there on his own, and they ran to secure their own lives, leaving Jesus to be arrested, to be tried, to be falsely accused, to be convicted, to be then hung on a cross, only to see and understand that he died, to then have taken his lifeless body and it was placed in a tomb and they rolled a stone away. And now three days later, they are in the upper room not knowing what to do. They're afraid. Have you ever been afraid? 
to the point your fear was paralyzed. Have you ever been in a circumstance or in a situation in which that circumstance and that situation was so life-threatening, it was so overwhelming, it was so difficult, it was so devastating, it was so defeating that you found yourself having a hard time and struggling to believe that God was greater than your circumstance? Before we get too critical on the disciples, I think all of us in this room will probably admit that there have been times in our lives when we, like the disciples, have found ourselves faithless, having a hard time believing in God. We, matter of fact, we have taken that fear even one step further. We have doubted God, and we have stopped believing in him and in the power that is available to us through the resurrection of Jesus, and we have been overcome with our fear, and we have become paralyzed trying to protect what we think is a value when all along we should be trusting in God with our everything. The disciples have strayed. They have walked away from their faith. They've been following Jesus relentlessly for three and a half years. They have left everything to follow him. And while he was in their midst, they were strong. They were courageous. They were undefeatable. And now they believe that Jesus has died. They are on their own. And they have left the very faith that they have committed to. And they have what we want to call backslidden. And God is going to call them to get back on track into the purpose for which they were not only called, chosen, and commissioned to be about that which God had originally purposed for their lives. He's going to bring them back to where they should have never left. And there are times in our lives, I think, when we need a reminder from God because we have strayed from the very purpose that God has for our lives because of our own choosing, because of our unbelief, because of our fear. We have, we have gone the other way rather than gone God's way, and God is reminding us to get back on track to the purpose for which he has called us, he has chosen us, and he has commissioned us. So let's take a look at the text in John 20, beginning with our first point. We actually have two today, only two. The reach of Jesus. Now, don't get excited. I got about 25 subpoints to each point, so we'll be okay. The reach of Jesus. He reaches for these wayward, faithless, cowardly, wimpy disciples. He reaches for them. And it's a beautiful reminder to me that regardless of how faithless, how wimpy, how whiny, how protective, how faithless, how unbelieving I am, he doesn't desert me. He continues to pursue me and he will reach me no matter how far I run from him. Now, for some of us, we need that message today, and for some of us, we know someone that is in our family, and that family member may be a spouse, it may be a child, it may be a grandchild. That grandchild has, has, has had, at one point, showed some sort of faith in Jesus, and he or she has strayed from the faith, and you've been praying for them. And let me remind you that they're not outside of the long arm of God, and Jesus can reach them wherever they are, but he will reach you no matter how far you run. Notice verse 19, we see the reach of Jesus, and Jesus first reaches out to them in verses 17 and 18 before this, not on your screen, 
where we are reminded in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Now stop there. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. This is the first of the third or the third day of the first day in which Christ has actually been raised from the dead. He is no longer dead, he is alive. This is resurrection morning. And it is the first day of the week, which is on your calendar, Sunday. Children, you want to know why we worship on Sunday? Because Sunday is the day in which we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we gather together on Sunday morning. This is the Sunday, the morning in which Jesus has been raised from the dead. It is Sunday evening of that first day in which Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's important for us to understand what has happened so far. Mary and some women run to the tomb in John chapter 20, verse 1. They discover that the tomb has been empty, and they assume that somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. And they run back to the disciples, and they tell them exactly what they have discovered. Somebody has stolen the body of our Lord. And Simon, Peter, and John, the apostle, the beloved disciple, have a foot race to the tomb. One gets there before the other, and they discover that the tomb has been empty, and the linen that has been laid there that had been wrapped around his body is now gone. I mean, the linen's there, but the body is gone. It's neatly folded there, and they can't make sense of it. And we are told that Simon Peter went home. But Mary stays in the garden when the two other disciples leave, and she's weeping. Not just, (laughs) but literally weeping. And Jesus appears, first unrecognized by her until he says her name. And she recognizes that it's Jesus, and he says, remember what I said? You remember what I spoke to you before this happened? I told you this was happened, but I gave you a word. I gave you a warning. I gave you a prophetic word from me that this would happen. And remember that? And she remembers it. And he says, go and tell the disciples that I have been raised from the dead. I am risen. I am not dead. I, have, I am alive. And she runs to tell the disciples. And amazing, it, it, we understand the disciples when they hear Mary, you are nuts, lady. And they don't believe her. Jesus reached out to them in a message from a woman that had discovered that he was alive, had spoken to him, and they still would not believe. When we are shaking and rattling in our unbelief, the words of God speak clearly to us, put faith in him. And why is it then that we don't believe in the words of Jesus? When you're in a dark, desperate, depressing, disbelieving, hard time in your life, open the word of God and God will speak through his word and in his word he will bring times of refreshing and renewal and he will reach out to you in your disbelief, in your lack of understanding, in your search for his presence and his power in your life and he will communicate to you. And Jesus is reaching out to them first through communication on that first day, but they don't believe. Notice not only did he send a messenger, but he stood among them. Notice the passage in verse 19. Again, it says, as on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, they were locked. Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now the doors are locked, and 
John is, is, is very transparent here, and there's a reason why he says the doors are locked. He wants us to understand two things, I think. First of all, they're locked because the disciples are in fear of the Jews, which disciples are present. And there's a lot of controversy and a lot of conflict among all the so-called scholars as to who's there and who's not there. It, to me, it really doesn't matter. I think the ten are there, but I think more than the ten are there. The, the Marys are there, and the, some of the women that are there, other disciples that are there. But the disciples of Jesus, those who have committed to follow him as their personal Savior and Lord, those have, who, who have been entrusted with the message, those who, have, those who have walked with him and supported his ministry, these disciples are all there, more than just the ten. And they are there in this room, and their doors are locked. And you see, they're locked because they're afraid, they're in fear of the Jews. You know, it kinda, it's interesting to me as I looked at this text this week, while I was traveling around Seattle and looking at, at all the things that, that God is doing in, in that northwest area that is pre-Christian, it's not post-Christian, and the, the opportunities are endless, and there's some wonderful pastors doing some wonderful things. I got to thinking, and we talked about this among some of the pastors, that the locked doors to me symbolizes the times in which we try to protect what we believe is ours because someone might come and steal, kill, and destroy. And the, how foolish it was for the disciples to think that, that a locked door is going to keep the Jews and the Romans out. Now think about it. A locked door is going to keep the Roman centurions out? It's ridiculous. It's foolish. It's a false sense of security. And how often do we try to then lock these things up from outsiders or from loss, thinking that somehow in our foolish effort, in our foolish attempt, that we can protect what we have? The only protection we have is when we give it to him. And they're locking it up. And it also, I think, serves as a reminder that no matter how we try to keep Jesus out, he can still penetrate the barriers that we put in front of him. No matter how we, we try to do that, he could just break them down. Because we're going to find that Jesus is going to enter into the room even though the doors are locked. And there are people that you may know right now that are putting up all kinds of barriers and all kinds of resistance and thinking that they can shelter or somehow isolate themselves from the work and the activity of God. But I'm here to tell you that God can penetrate those barriers and those boundaries and in his sovereignty and his divinity can penetrate that and enter into the very presence of that person's life and reveal himself and his plan and his purpose for them. But I think it's also a sort of reminder of what we read next because the doors are locked, and Jesus came and stood among them. I mean, these disciples are in this locked room. <laughs> Get a picture of this. Thinking that they're, they're, they're safe. And nobody unwelcome and unwanted, uninvited is going to come in. And all of a sudden, out of thin air, Jesus is standing in their presence. He didn't come through the door. The door's locked. They didn't unlock it and let him in. The door is locked, and Jesus, out of thin air, just appears. And he stands there. He just stands there in their midst, among them. Not in a corner, not behind the curtain, not under the table, but he is among them. He is in the middle, in the midst. He is among them, standing there. All of a sudden, Jesus appears. Where are they? Why can't they see this? Because they are so busy, preoccupied in their own fear of protecting their lives that they can't see the forest because of the tree. And they don't see him. And he stands there. 
among them. I wonder how long he stood there. Because they don't address him. They don't speak to him. He just stands there. He just stands there. And he stood among them. They didn't see him. And then we see in the rest of verse 19, and he said to them, peace be with you. He speaks finally. Not sure how long he stood there, but he stands there. Nobody recognized him. Not like the time, you know, when he told them to cast the net on the other side and it's Jesus. And he, boom, he died. They don't recognize him. And then he speaks. And even when they speak, he speaks. I don't think they recognize him. Not like Mary. He said, it's you, my Lord. But he speaks. And what does he speak? Peace be with you. You know, it's interesting that Jesus had every right to just, man, to, to just judge them. To let them have it. To tell them what spineless, worthless, unbelieving, faithless disciples you've been. You abandoned me in the garden. You're hiding up here in the room. Where is your faith, man? What is wrong with you? Have you not learned anything by now? Instead, he simply says, peace be with you. This is a greeting, and he's, he's wanting to instill in these troubled, preoccupied, difficult times in his disciples' lives that are literally afraid for their lives. He just says, peace. He just speaks peace, and there's a quietness in their spirit and their soul and the atmosphere. I, I, I wonder if maybe while they were waiting on Jesus, there was some argumentation going on and and some blaming and kind of like a Baptist business meeting, you know what I mean? And some stuff going on. And he just says, peace be with you. And just, just a calmness like he spoke to the waters, you know, when they were in the storm. He just said, Whew. And all of a sudden they were filled with peace. And there's a quietness in the room. The troubled hearts were gone. And he speaks peace. Not judgment, not condemnation, not rebuke, but peace. And notice he shows them then his power. Verse 20, when he, Jesus, had said this. It's interesting, there's, there's no response. And there's no time to say anything. Jesus, once he says, peace be with you, just goes right into what he does next. And he showed them his hands and his side. Notice he shows him his power. He's giving them evidence of who he is. He speaks, peace be with you. And then he stretches out his hands so they can see him. And he lifts aside and sees and reveals the spear. Why is he doing that? He's showing them, hey guys, I'm giving you evidence that I have been raised from the dead. It's me, Jesus, your Messiah, your Master, your Savior. Look, see for yourself. It is I. You didn't believe Mary. You didn't believe the two that were on the road to Damascus. You didn't believe in Peter. Believe in me. Look for yourself. And he says later to Thomas, blessed are those who don't see and yet still believe. Thomas had to see in order to believe. And he reveals his hands and his side. He gives them evidence of his divinity and evidence that he has been raised from the dead. And then notice the encouragement that takes place in their hearts. Then, after they see and they stare at it for a moment, I wonder how long it took for them to, to stare at it. 
I mean, this was a miraculous thing. Their Savior, their Jesus, their Master, who they had heard had died on a cross and been his lifeless body placed in a tomb and the, the stone had been rolled away and they had heard from Mary and they didn't believe it and now he's standing right there. The doors were locked and they probably looked at the door and it's locked and all of a sudden he's here and he's showing his hand and showing his side. Luke tells us that after that he asked him for some fish because he was hungry and they gave him some and he ate it. Talk about freaking you out. He wanted to show them I'm not a ghost. I am alive. Ghosts don't eat anything. I keep thinking about Casper, the friendly ghost, when I was a kid. He's not a ghost. It's really Jesus in his glorified state, like you and I will someday have. He's physically there among them, but he supernaturally appeared in the room with with the doors locked. It's freaking them out. And then he asks for a fish, and he eats the fish in their presence, recognizing it's him. And then all of a sudden, then after that, the disciples were glad when they saw it was the Lord. They were glad. Notice their encouragement. He is alive. He is not dead. Jesus has reached out to us in our despair, in our discouragement, in our disbelief, through the locked door. He has finally arrived, and now he is present, and he's reached out to us. And notice now they call him Lord. He is their master, and their relationship has been reunited. They have been reconnected, and now their faith has been, it's totally different. Jesus can reach you, and he can reach anyone. Nothing that we put up, no barriers, no amount of disbelief that we present or try to put up that would prevent he, he just he invades he has chosen he calls and he's about to commission his disciples and now lordship has been reestablished they 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 abandoned their lord and they went on their own and now he is again once again their lord he is their master they are his and they are now again following him jesus goes after his disciples he reaches for them But notice he restores them as well. Not only to reach for them, but there's a restoration that takes place. The restoration of Jesus. Jesus didn't stop with just this lordship concept. He wants to sort of realign them once again for the purpose for which he has chosen, he has called, and he has commissioned them. There's something that that is pressing on his heart that is necessary for them to do because Jesus is only going to be with them for... For, for 40 days, and, and, and then there's going to be a time in which they're going to go to, to Acts, and they're going to wait for the, the Pentecost to take place, and for all of those things to happen. And so there's going to be a period, there's going to be a lull, and Jesus is wanting to ensure that, that now that there's been a reconnect, that he restores them not just back into his lordship and under his followership, but restores once again the reason why they were chosen, called, and commissioned. They were chosen to be his messengers on his mission with his message of redemption. He's going to need them. And we see in this restoration process, he says, I want you guys to take my peace. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. He says, he says it a second time. And I thought about it. I said, well, maybe the disciples are like me. They're a little dense. They need to hear it more than once. Anybody relate to that? Come on. Can you relate to that? Hey, Jesus, I didn't hear it the first time. Would you say it again? 
And some of us are so dense, he has to say it a hundred times. I gave a, I don't know why I took an Experience in God book with me on the trip I took this week to Seattle. And it was a pastor and he and I got to talking and he was sharing some of his discouragement. And the Lord just told me, take that book, Experience in God, that you put in your book and in your backpack, I had it with me, and give it to him. Because I didn't tell you to bring it for yourself, I told you to bring it for you. And we talked about the message that's in there. And, we gave, and I gave it to him, and he's been reading it. Because sometimes we need to understand that he is with us, and what he has called us to do is, is, is in a hostile world that is dangerous, that is difficult. There are more people right now dying for their belief in Jesus and for their faith in Christ and for the promotion and the proclamation of the gospel, I believe, than in any other time in the history of the church. There are more martyrs today than in any time in the history of the church. We're just not feeling it because we're in the U.S. And, and, and it's a dangerous world out there. And these disciples somehow have, have managed to convince themselves that they're safe in this room because they have the locked door and nobody knows where they are. And Jesus is about to commission them to go. And he's saying, you're going to go. And as I tell you to go, you're going to go with my peace. Don't you worry when I send you. Don't, don't be afraid to leave here and to go out there where those people are hostile and they're going to persecute you and they may, they may put you in jail and they may falsely accuse you and they may kill you. And most of the disciples were, were murdered horribly for the faith. But in the process of going, know that you can go with my peace. Because not only have they experienced peace personally, but they can go knowing that they have the peace that surpasses all understanding, a confidence that comes through a belief in Jesus. He says, take my peace as you leave. Notice the second part of verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Not only take my peace, but trust my plan. Trust my plan. He says to them, the reason I have come is because I came to fulfill a mission. And that mission was to redeem a lost humanity because their relationship has been broken because of sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a separation, there's a division, and the wage of that sin is death. But for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We have a gospel message and Christ was sent to redeem a lost, dead, depraved, doomed, damned humanity, and that's why Jesus came, that's why I died on the cross, and that's why I have risen from the dead, that's why I have been sent, and now I am sending you to do exactly what I have done. I am sending you to now to do what I have done, because he's already told them he's going to leave, and on his leaving, he's going to ask them now to continue the mission that he was sent on in proclaiming the message of the good news, that salvation is available through those who will place their trust in Jesus. That's his plan. We are his plan. You are his plan. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, you're the plan. You're the plan. I had a pastor friend of mine. A new friend of mine, I just sent him a text this morning, great guy. Uh, I met in north of Seattle. The guy came from a South American country. I believe he came here in flight in fear for his life. His country was in, was in a, uh, a battle between uh, 
communism and, and all of that, and, and he was a lawyer, has a law degree, and probably had to flee the country. He went to, to, um, to Canada first and now came to the U.S. He has started nine churches in the United States of America and trained 25 pastors in the last six years. He's a phenomenal young man. Well, he's, he's young. He's only about six years younger than me, but uh, uh, phenomenal guy. And uh, we got to talking, and he was showing me these slides. And about five minutes into his slide presentation, Brother Gail, I said, stop. I, I don't need to see anymore. I, I don't. The guy was fired up. And I was, what, do, what, do you, what can I give you, man? Whatever you need, here it is. I, mean, I wanted to give him everything I had. Really, I, I, every resource Emmanuel had, I just wanted to give it to him, turn over a blank check, said write it. But I was afraid of how much he might write, so I, I couldn't do that. But, uh, and, and we got to talking, and he says, you know, he's new to this Southern Baptist life and to missions and all that. And, and he's been doing this, Brother Gail, for about three years on his own. And the last two years, he kind of came to the you know, the, the uh, catalyst perch planter there in, in Seattle. And, and they said, what's your plan? He said, Pastor Charles, I have no plan. I don't know what my plan is. I have no plan. I mean, he said that in, in Spanish, you know, with kind of a, an English accent. I have no plan. And I said, well, I just got through preaching on John 3, 8. That's what God told me to tell him. John 3, 8. Look it up. He opens his Bible, his Spanish Bible, and he looks at it. And it's the wind that comes and goes. You can't control it. We talked about that. And then went to John 5. And he said, I have a plan. And the plan is just to set his sail and go with the Spirit of God. That is his plan. All these other church planners, I said, they got a plan. It's in a little package deal. It's all, it's, it, it's, it, it, I mean, it's in a plan. I mean, you could boom, 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 boom. And they're going to do a soft launch, a pre-launch, a launch, launch, a launch before the launch, a launch after the launch. And they're going to do all that. And they got this whole thing. And he has no plan like that. And he said, I have no plan. I said, brother, your plan right now. I mean, after starting nine churches, four, four of which are not counted because four are in, in Canada, which he can't cross the Canadian border now because he doesn't have his papers across and come back. He, he's already been put in jail once for going up there and pastoring these four churches. He trained 25 pastors and planted, I don't know, 13 churches without a plan. And I said, brother, you are the plan. And the plan is for you to host your, hoist your sail and the Spirit of God just... He, I said, he's got this church that he wants to buy, and he wants to use it as a, as a pastoral planning thing, and he needs $250,000. And, and he wants to plant... Hundreds of churches. I mean, his, his little church is only running about 80. But he has 25 pastors he's trained that are pastoring his other churches. And he wants this. <laughs> I, I can't help but say this. I was walk, uh, he was taking me to this church that he wants to buy to use as a church planning center because he needs $250,000. And we're going, and he's talking about reaching the, the documented workers that are working there in Seattle. They're working in the field on Sundays, these Spanish people. And they're working on Sundays, and he wants them to hear the gospel. So he pointed to an antenna that cost $1,000. He said, I have these all over the area, and my Sunday broadcast is being live, and we're putting these speakers out in the fields so they can hear the gospel while they work, while I preach it on Sunday morning. You know what I said to him after hearing all this? Of course you do. What else do you say to that? It just blew my mind, this, this man who, who has this vision of reaching the, the Hispanic workers that are flooding the fields of, of the Washington state with the gospel while they work through a loudspeaker system while he's preaching on Sunday the gospel of Jesus. And he preaches open air everywhere he goes. Reminds me of my dad when we were in Brazil. What's the plan? 
You're the plan. I'm the plan. We are the plan that he has chosen. Trust my plan. Tap into my power. Because we can't do it in our own power. Verse 22, and when he had said this, after he had said this, there's a connection between what he has just said and what he's about to do. He breathed on them. I don't have time to go into a lot of the exposition here and to talk about what Jesus is or isn't doing. There's all this debate theologically and all these volumes about what this actually means. It doesn't really matter to me right now or to us at this point with the exception that Jesus, he breathes in and he breathes out. Ezekiel 37, another passage in the Old Testament, talks about the breath and talks about the breath, the wind, as we talked about in 3.8, and the Spirit of God, the wind. He breathes in and he breathes out. And notice what he says. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute, I thought they were supposed to receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Well, let me, let me remind you that the Holy Spirit has not been absent in the work of Jesus, nor in the lives of those who have been around Jesus. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Imagine that. Zechariah, when he saw Jesus being dedicated, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Jesus, when he's being baptized by John the Baptist, the Spirit in the form of a dove came down and landed on Christ. So the Holy Spirit has been actively present, and Jesus knows that in the next 50 days, his disciples are going to have a hard time understanding and connecting all the dots and putting it all together and, and overcoming the flesh and their doubts and the discouragement and all the things that are about to happen. And he's going to come and go and come and go, and he's not going to always be present. And so he, I believe, gives them an impartation, a sample of the Holy Spirit that will tie them over for the next 50 days until Pentecost happens. Call it an anointing, call it a filling, call it a special endowment for a particular point and season and time in their life. It is a, a, a paraclete or whatever you want to call it. It is a sampling of what is to come in the, in, in, the, in the book of Acts in Pentecost. And they received all these. Why? Because they're going to need power. They're going to need power to accomplish what Jesus is asking them to do. We cannot do, we cannot live, we cannot become we cannot tell in and of ourselves in our own strength in our own resources in our own power we need supernatural power to accomplish what god has called us to do just like the disciples then we need it today and yet we rely so much on ourselves and so little on him and then notice we are to transfer then the purpose for which we are called verse 23 if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them. And then he says, if you withhold forgiveness of any, it is withheld. I've always wanted to be a Catholic priest. May I confess that? You know why? Here's why. I've always wanted to be in one of those confessionals and pretend I didn't know it was you when you're confessing your sins. Man, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Brother Godwin, I would, you could come in. I, I know that accent, brother. You can't hide it. And just kind of take notes. <laughs> Next time I see you, I go, ha, ha, ha. I mean, imagine that. Having to confess sins to a man because 
you do know the Pope is the bridge to forgiveness, that if the Pope says you're not forgiven, you're not forgiven. If you're not saved, you're not. That's Catholicism, true Catholicism. He is not the, the bridge. And there, there is no priest other than Jesus. And it's only to him that we confess our sins. Because he and he alone did the finished work on the cross so that through faith, through our trust in him, he died on the cross for our sins and now we can be forgiven if we will place our faith and trust in him as our Savior and Lord. What he's simply saying here to his disciples is, let me, let me bring you back to the purpose for which you were created and that is to go out and proclaim the good news, the gospel, and people when they trust in me will be forgiven of their sins. But here's the great part. The, the withholding part, I think it says, remind them. Remind them that once saved, always secure. That you can never, ever, ever lose your salvation. We've been pretty hard on those of us who claim to be saved and who aren't. But if you're truly saved, if you truly place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, that salvation, that forgiveness has been available to you from the moment the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit came and washed you white as snow. And it's not about anymore how you live or don't live, that even in your sin and your mistakes, your shortcomings, your faithlessness, your failures, you can come to Jesus. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so, there was a restoration, a realignment that needed to be made. I know it's time. i got about nine minutes, so I'm going to close with this story. I didn't know how long it would be, but here we go. Pretty lengthy story, but it's an important story about uh, two civilizations that were on opposite ends and a big mountainous. The reason I thought about this is because I've been in Seattle. If you've ever been to Seattle or, or to uh, Vancouver, sea, city, mountains. And uh, so I, I thought about this story, and, and uh, these two civilizations are divided by this huge mountainous region, and there was only one road that connected the two civilizations together. It was a very treacherous road and very rocky and very, very small, and, and many who traveled that road didn't make it. At the top of the mountain, there was a, the road divided, and one was a dead end, and the other went to the civilization. The other one was used for mining and such not, but never got. And so there was a, a man who made it his life mission to stay at that fork of the road at the top of the mountain and warn travelers who would go back and forth in two civilizations which road to take. And he'd done that for years. There was a, a young man who was making that journey to the other civilization to visit family on the other side, and as he got to that, that intersection, the elderly man warned him of which was the right road and which was the wrong road. And he thanked them. He said, how long have you been doing this? They got to talking. He said, I've been doing this for a long time. As a matter of fact, I've been doing it so long that I've had a few grandchildren that were born. I wish I could go down and see them. Would you stay here for me for just a little bit while I go down there? He said, well, I'd be glad to. For all you've done for all of us all this time, yes, I'll stay here. And so he packed his bags and he left. He said, I'll be back in a little while, but, but you stay here and warn people which is the right way and the wrong way. He said, I will. And he went. While that young man made his camp and he started warning people, people would ask, where'd the old man go? He said, well, he went down there to visit family and friends and he's going to come back. He won't be gone very long, but he'll come back. And they said, well, we want to wait here with you. He said, okay, you can wait. And so a few started waiting and a few more started waiting and a few more started waiting. For you know what? There was a large crowd that were waiting for the old man to come back, camping out there at the fork of the road. And 
They're around the campfire one night, all of these people kind of talking about what they were doing. And one said, you know, I'm so thankful for this elderly man and all that he's done for us. He said, you know what? I, I think we need to prepare a very special, very special time for him when he returns. I think we ought to have a big welcoming home party. We'll post someone at down there where we see him coming and we will escort him and kind of do a fanfare parade and we'll do this really bang up deal. What do you think? And everybody says, Matt, that's a great, great idea. And so they had a planning committee. And uh, one guy said, you know what, I, I, I'm a good songwriter, and so I'm going to write some songs about the old man, how wonderful he was and has been for dedicating and giving his life so that many could be saved. We're so grateful. I'm going to write some songs. And a few others said, you know what, I'm an instrumentalist. And so they got together a music committee, and they went off to write songs. And somebody said, you know what, I'm a good speech writer. I happen to be a politician, and I'm going to write some speeches. And somebody said, well, I'm a school teacher, and I'm this and that. So they went off to begin to write some speeches about how wonderful and how appreciative and how thankful of the old man. Then somebody said, you know what, I'm a builder, Mike, and I think we ought to build this guy. Instead of making him live in a tent, let's build him the greatest mansion that anybody could ever live in. And he said, what do you think? And some others said, you know what, I'm good at, at, at carpentry and I'm good at electricity. And so they began to form and to build this incredible mansion. And all these preparations were being made. Finally, somebody blew the horn, signifying the return of the old man, and they greeted him at the entrance, and they gave him a fanfare entrance into the city with lined up all of the people, and they were just, you know, applauding him, and they brought him to the position of honor, and they sang him their songs, they proclaimed to him their message, they offered him the key to this beautiful mansion, and then after they had done all that they had done for him, it was his turn to say thank you. And so he stood center stage and he turned out to the audience and he said, who did you leave at the fork of the road? You see, in all of their preparation, they forgot the primary purpose for which the original man was left. And that was to warn people at the fork of the road the right way from the wrong way to go. Church has become just like that. We sing these songs, we preach these messages, we build these massive facilities for one day he will return as we have been studying and the trumpet of God will glow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up into the air and we will welcome him and he will establish his kingdom. And I wonder when he stands center stage, he's going to ask his church. He's going to ask us as individuals, who did you leave at the fork of the road? He's not impressed with our buildings, church. He's not impressed with our eloquent speaking. He's not impressed with our musical talent or our voices or the songs that we write. He's wanting us to use every ability, every talent, every resource we have to declare that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He defeated sin and through faith in him as we put our trust in his atoning, redeeming work on the cross, we can be saved from our sin, reconciled with God, have peace with him, and enter into an eternal promise of an inheritance that is rightfully ours, that can never be lost, and a part of the kingdom of God. 
How many people do you know, if you're his plan, you're his plan, have not been warned? You know, I was in Seattle this week, and I'm going to close with this. They have a, they have a culture of pre-Christian culture. It's a pre-Christian culture. That means that they're not hostile toward religion. They're not hostile toward Christ. Uh, where Aaron is in Montreal, they're post-Christian. They have an antagonism toward Christians. Uh, they, 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 I mean, you say you're a Christian, and you can't even use the word church. They get <clears throat> riled up. So Aaron's in this, this, this strange place. But, but Seattle, Vancouver, it's pre-Christian. Seattle, U.S., pre-Christian. There's not much gospel there. And we got to talking about the the contextualization of our context here and the culture here in Wichita. You know what it dawned on me after almost nine years of being here? You know what our culture is? It's religion. We have a religious spirit about our city and about our cultural context. We are a city filled with Nicodemuses who have a religious rightness about themselves, but have never been born again. They've never been born again. They attend church. They sit in Bible studies. They take notes. They're working really hard at at working out their faith, but they have no faith because they've never been born again. Wichita is what I believe a Nicodemus culture that is a religious stronghold that Satan has been using to keep us silent about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are people that you know right now who may attend church even this morning. They may have taken notes, but they have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus. They've never been born again. And we have this spirit of religion about us where all roads lead to heaven who claim to be Christian. The Catholic Church is not Christian. If the Pope is the one that holds the key to someone's salvation and the bridge between us and heaven, that is not in the Bible. If a religion or a denomination who claims to be Christian that preaches that someone could be saved today and lost tomorrow, they have never been born again, and they are not Christian. And there are scores of them. There are churches that call themselves mostly Baptist. And I worry about the mostly part. What does that mean? And yet they don't believe that once you're saved, you're always secure and you're always saved. Well, if I didn't do anything to earn my salvation, how can I do something to lose my salvation? And we have somehow embraced this cultural Christianity that is a religious spirit in Wichita that has no distinction between true born-again believers and those who are not. And my prayer has been in the last week, Lord, break, break the spirit of religion in our city. I almost wish we were post-Christian or pre-Christian rather than where we are today. It would make it a lot easier to know who is and who isn't. I tell you, when I lived in Santa Fe and I passed the first time in Santa Fe, you know who was a believer and who wasn't. <laughs> I mean, you knew. And so I wonder about us as a church. Have we gotten away, church, myself, pastoral staff, and us, have we gotten away with standing at the fork of the road 
and taking a stand on what we know to be the Word of God, the gospel of Christ, proclaiming it not only with clarity but with confidence and with courage, knowing that unless people are born again, I don't care what kind of religion they belong to, they're not going to be a part of the kingdom of God, and they'll not be prepared for the return of Jesus. We are the plan. And we need to get about his purpose. Because I believe one day he will return. And I don't want to hear him say, hey, Charles, why didn't you stay at the fork of the road? All this busyness, you should have been at the fork of the road. Let's pray.